Hello friends, I'm your host Chris Thrill, I'm a former Royal Marines Commando, I've adventured for better and sometimes worse across 80 countries on all seven continents. Welcome to the Bought the T-Shirt Podcast. Dean, how are you brother? Yeah, good. You uh, yourself? Yes, can't complain. Been, I've been in the garden for the last half hour and uh, my God, it's, it, and I'm never one of these people that says it's too hot because it can never be too hot, but yeah. blooming hell, it is, it's hot. <laughs> yeah, it's a hot one. I'm in Aberdeen and it's over 25 degrees here, so people are spontaneously combusting in Scotland. Uh, <laughs> are they still blue? <laughs> yeah, well, they've gone a little bit, a little bit white now. Massive thanks for joining us, mate, especially at such uh, short notice. No, so it's, it's all kicking off for you with your book then. It's now released. Yeah, well, the, the paperback got released yesterday. The hardback's been released since uh, October. So that's had a good run at it. And obviously we're supposed to be out now promoting the paperback. But because of the current situation we're in at the moment, uh, I haven't been able to, um, you know, to do that and attend the literary festivals and uh, other events that we had scheduled. So it's all had to be via social media. Well, I think, um, I don't think that's been a bad thing really, right? Um, no, I think, there's, I think there's a lot of positives on this, this period. You know, um, yes, I, I, don't, I don't believe in the phrase we're all in the same boat because people have different boats you know people are in different situations but for myself personally I've taken a lot of positives from this time I've never spent as much time with my family as I have during this period um but just things going back to basics just baking again not wasting any food just simple things going out with the family you know having walks going for runs um being physically active so um there's a lot of positives and obviously now as we're communicating now virtually, that seems to be on the, on the rise and maybe a trend moving forward. So, um, no, it's been good. Yeah, good. I think as a podcaster, it's probably couldn't have been a better time, really, because I don't have to get in the car and go out and meet people. I just talk to them on this thing. And, and of course, everyone's trapped at home wanting yeah. new content to watch. So, God yeah, bless the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, exactly. And I think that, that's, that's helped me as well with, with business and everything else. Normally, when you're trying to get hold of someone, you're then waiting on another third party and it, and it just starts uh, getting delayed. Now, you know, everyone is at home. They've got no excuse. Mm. So, Dean, let's I, I don't like doing big introductions. It's not I, I, I'm not an interviewer. I'm not Michael Parkinson. I'm not Terry Wogan. Uh, I just like to chat to mates. And I think it's the best way, but your story is pretty special. So in, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to give my little synopsis and then you, then we'll fill in the blanks as we talk. So former member of the special boat service, you've done your bit in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, from what I gather from the literature and I'll apologize to all my guests. Now there was a time I would have read everybody's book before they came on my podcast. I'll be a liar if I said I even had time to read the books I want to read in my life, right? <laughs> let alone everybody else's. It, it, I mean, I'm reading about two pages of a book, a book a night. I'm so tired now. Yeah. Um, so 
skydiving accident. Yeah, yeah, hey ho jump, yeah. Hey ho, high yeah. altitude, high opening. Yeah. And then cutting a very, you know, cutting your life story short, you, mm. you went on to cycle the length of the Americas. And, and uh, grab some world records there in the process, right? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and then yeah. So, <clears throat> so you rightly touched on there. I was um, I was ex army. I didn't go the traditional route of the Royal Marines to the Special Boat Service. But having spent eight years in Free Commander Brigade, and I was also the senior diving instructor for the Army, it was that natural transition for me. So much to the disgust of my mates at Hereford, um, I decided to go uh, SBS and was one of the, the earlier members to come across from the army. And I think now 15% of the SBS are army. So pretty much one of the earlier guys that opened, opened the, fl the floodgates. And as you, as you mentioned then, I, would, I joined at a height of war and terror. You know, I was doing uh, operational jumps. We were doing hostage rescues. We were doing doing everything that you'd signed up to do. I was at the pinnacle of my career. Um, I was living and breathing um, uh, the life of an SF soldier. And as you rightly touched on there, I was two weeks before going back out on another tour to the Middle East, we were doing pre-deployment training and I was doing a hey-ho jump, a high altitude, high opening jump. So unlike uh, skydiving where you're, <clears throat> you're clear of lines, when you exit the aircraft, you're still attached to the aircraft to open the parachute, static line it's called. And as I exited the aircraft, my leg got caught up in the line above my head. Um, so my first concern was to clear my leg in time before potentially my leg getting completely taken off. I couldn't release it in time and my leg got pulled up over my head and to the right. But thankfully, my leg did clear. But straight away, I knew there was a big issue. Um, and at 15,000 feet on the limits of oxygen, I was drifting in and out of consciousness and also vomiting because of the pain. But my, most, my first concern was how was I going to land this? I, no one else in the team was aware there was a situation at this time. So I still had to travel up to 30 minutes to the, uh, to the DZ. I landed it successfully. It was a great landing, one-legged. But uh, unfortunately, damage sustained on the exit. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus within the knee, my hamstring, my quad, and my calf. So all the supporting muscles as well. So everything up until that Point was going uh, as I wanted it and then all of a sudden just a big curveball with this injury and that was the start of the end end of my career within the military after 16 years I'm just gonna peel back there because I didn't realize so many people were coming from the army to the SBS now I, I I'll be honest I had no idea even people like yourself had done that yeah so so uh, they uh, Gone in the past where uh, SBS had their own selection process and the SAS had theirs. They did a joint UKF selection, so both units came together. But what, it ha what was happening was, if you're in the Royal Marines, you had the option of going SBS or SAS. And a lot of the Marines don't actually like diving. You know, you have to be quite comfortable underwater. It's quite an alien uh, environment. So the SBS were losing candidates to the SAS because of that. So they, ended, they then decided to open their doors, try service, because the Royal Engineers, where I came from, we have 500 um, divers. So there's a great pool of guys there to, to select from. So, and then once, once you had the likes of Afghanistan uh, and Iraq kicking off, you had SF support group as well. So the Paras SF support group would be working with alongside SBS. 
So they were getting good exposure the way how we operate and everything else. And that itself is a good recruitment campaign. So yeah, there was a, an infill of army guys coming from uh, various directions. I mean, guess that in the Middle East, the diving's not, not all that important anyway. No, not so much in there, not so much in the Middle East, no. <laughs> so did you say your background was engineers? Yeah, so I was Royal Engineers. My father was in the engineers, so I followed Stoot. Um, but then I went to 5-9 Commando to serve alongside the, uh, the Royal Marines and Free Commando Brigade. But I was very fortunate. I spent eight years solid at 5-9. Um, Seven of those were in with uh, Recce Troop, with the Brigade Reconnaissance Force, part of BPT. Um, and also took a year at Limston. I was an instructor on the All Arms team as well. So I was very much immersed in that Green Beret environment. So for me... Yes, SBS was a natural transition. Mm. How is it with the language then when you when you come from the army and you're working with Marines or, or, or the SBS or you are in the SBS? Do you just adopt the, the naval language or do you keep your own or do, does, does no one really care? No, no, within the army, obviously, when you go 5-9, 5-9, you then adopt the naval terminology. And then obviously when you're on joint courses with nine para and things like that, you, you know, you use wet, you use goffers, well, they use brews and everything else. So we very much like to promote that naval terminology. And then when we go, when we went to SBS, it was a natural, natural transition, but it was good. I remember when I got married, um, I had guys from the SAS, guys from the SBS, uh, guys from all over. So I literally had to do a little, a uh, little pamphlet, which was uh, sort of explaining the slang and the terminology. But even though, you know, even when you talk about, you know, Scran, I mean, you call it Jackie Chan and things like that. So even, even the naval and the army terminology had a slang as well. So people were getting really confused. <laughs> what about the, um, what about the marching and the drill and stuff? I, I, I'm guessing you don't do a lot of that in the special forces, but. Um, no, you army, don't. Army's all this. Da, 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 and in the Marines, it's all kind of slow down yeah. or well i remember um i remember i actually we i was um i was um doing we were doing uh i was uh at one of the funerals actually so we're doing drill for that and um i remember you could have the marines slide their feet in and then we we raise our um, we raise our leg till it's 90 degrees parallel and bring it in so you could easily see who the army guy was from the distance um but when i actually got to the sbs um I wanted to get a set of lovers and as with the rest of the guys in the unit because in the army we have like what i call a ginger fighting suit the number twos i didn't want to stand out completely in front of everyone and um so my sergeant major you know he went up actually to cgrm and came down and said no i wasn't allowed to wear them because i didn't have raw marine uh, buttons so i remember going to a funeral at uh, hereford and literally you know, the lads beeline for me because they could see I was the odd one out. You, you, you must be one of the army lads. So two weeks later, unfortunately, we had another funeral. I was like, I'm not having that again. So I went and signed a set of Lovitz out anyway and just ignored CGRM. And, and I think everyone then since uh, did that. But like I said, I was one of the early guys to go across. So it was almost all the teething problems I was dealing with uh, being one of the first. What was the selection like then? That's... that's yeah, they, they, they say be a grey man, don't they? They always say be a grey man. But when you're an army guy going SBS and being one of the first, you're, you're about as grey for about the 
first 10 minutes when he started calling out the roll call. But there was a couple of instructors on my selection who were X59 and 9 Para. 9 Para is the uh, airborne uh, uh, engineers. And, you know, when I used to get to the checkpoint on the hill, you know, they'd be like, stop, you know, why are you going SPS? And I said, well, I like diving. They're like, that's a shit answer, grab a rock. So I had to pick up a rock, stick it in my Bergen. And that Bergen, that rock had to stay in that Bergen all the way to the end of the day. This went on every day for like two weeks. I was at, I've had enough of this. So at the weekend when I was home, I just, um, I, I Googled Bournemouth Beach heatwave and there was a two page spread from the center of the Sun newspaper of topless women. So I printed that off, laminated it and stuck it in my map pocket. So on the Monday, when I got to the checkpoint, the DS normal procedure was that, right, stop, why are you going SBS? So I put my weapon on my feet out of the mud, took this picture out and I said, because that's not in Hereford. Uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, good answer. So from that day on, I didn't have to carry uh, a rock, but I made sure I kept that picture in my map pocket. But just, again, understanding that, you know, humour is one of the ethos of special forces and in the military anyway, you need to have a sense of humour. Yes, exactly. Is it, um, is it hard then on that Hills phase? I, I'm, I'm always trying to get my head around it because I'm a different person at 50 mentally yeah. than I was when I was yeah, you know, 18, yeah. right? Yeah. I think I generally believe that anyone in the military can pass the, the Hills. They're, they're physically uh, capable. It's having the right mindset. Uh, having the right approach, but it's also staying away from injury. That's a key one on, on the hills phase is the fact that, you know, you need to steer clear of injury. And I'd, I'd done selection a few years previous and uh, got injured myself on the hills. I had, had a, um, a torn my lateral meniscus. So I was always conscious of not uh, a reoccurring injury. So I'd always make sure I was up 30 minutes before taping my ankles uh, and everything else. But, but I generally believe, you know, if, you, if you're prepared properly, but what they do now, which is probably different from when you're in, rather than Guys used to go on selection not knowing what selection was about. And you only get two opportunities. So a lot of guys would waste an opportunity, either because they weren't physically prepared or um, soldier uh, military skills they weren't prepared or, or map reading. So now you have a briefing course at Hereford and a briefing course at Paul, whichever way you want to go. You spend a week with those units and you do a lot of physical tests, you do a lot of soldiering tests. So they will let you know whether you are ready to go. So you're not wasting opportunities so the only reason you should should come up is for injury which is which is great moving forward and what what is the the actual dive training like so the the royal engineer dive training that which we do before i go to the uh, sf one is, is very arduous everyone's heard of the commander course everyone's heard of p company but this course itself is one of the one of the hardest courses in the military because not only you need to be physically fit but actually working and operating underwater. So in the, in the engineers, anything we do on the surface, we do underwater, it's a bit concrete, chainsaws, demolitions, the lot. And working in that contained environment at depth is very, uh, very alien. So you need to be uh, physically robust. So then going into the special forces um, uh, dive course is very different completely. But in the engineers, we're divers. In the special forces, you're swimmers. You know, you swim um, uh, shallow water. Um, but for me, very comfortable in that environment. And it was good to obviously help the, the other lads who had just passed, you know, uh, adapt to that quickly. Gosh, so um, we're talking dry suit diving, right? Was that, or was it wetsuit diving sometimes? 
Royal Engineers was dry suit diving, unless the water was warm enough. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're going down to 50 meters, you, you need a dry suit it's, it's, and it's pitch black down there. And again, with the, um, with the swimmer, swimmer canoeists with the SBS, it depended on the, on the water temperatures as well. But, you know, even if it's quite cold and you're in a wetsuit, you're still physically going for it. You're carrying all the equipment on you as well. And you can swim in up to five kilometers on an insertion. So you need to obviously be conscious of what you're wearing. But if you're wearing a dry suit, that'll affect your buoyancy even if you're wearing a wetsuit. So you, you know what, what to wear and what works best. Mm. Yeah, that buoyancy thing caught really caught me when I when I moved to a dry suit. I diving just became really difficult. <laughs> I was yeah. either going up or I was going down. I could never just get that buoyancy. It's quite easy to get in a wetsuit. It, it is. I mean, obviously, there's a difference if you're in here in the sea, and if you're in fresh water as well. They, they all have have different effects. Mm. You wait till you're on an iceberg. Have you have you done that? <laughs> no, I've not, not, not done any. Well, we've dived in Norway. We've dived under the under the rivers in Norway, in the in, and in the fjords, but not not on an iceberg. I dived on an iceberg in Antarctica, and uh, then not not only have you got the whole buoyancy with your wetsuit and your and your buoyancy jacket, but you've got the cold water, fresh water coming off the iceberg, and the salt water, literally. So you're 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 in that part where the two meet and. One minute you're going up, next minute you're you're plummeting down, and you're doing all this to try to, you know, you put an air into your suit to try and keep yourself um, buoyant, yeah, and uh, yeah, quite know, quite, quite borders on frightening. Yeah, the submarines have that issue off the west coast of Scotland when they're coming yes. in and they got hit the locks. Yeah, you know, when they come from the sea waters into the fresh water and they just drop. Yeah, uh, and if you're not expecting it, especially if you're you're not supposed to be. Um, going past a certain depth, it can be quite quite worrying. Yeah, yeah. I spoke to Duncan Faulkner literally last week, and he said yeah. they lost a guy uh, doing that. The submarine plummeted, and some of the guys got off it, and one yeah. guy got dragged down. Or we lose a we lose a lot of di uh, a lot of guys because the because the kit is um, um, self contained, so it's one hundred percent O two. Um, so it gives off no bubbles, but what, uh, it's a closed circuit, what it's called. But what it is, anything deeper than seven meters, and it's, it's toxic, so you can die. So you need to be staying between seven meters and the, and the surface. And, then, and if you have big drops like that, then obviously it can uh, affect you. But if also if you're diving along in a shipping lane, big ship comes, you know, you need to make that descent. So, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, um, lot of issues. And we, we, we lose a lot of guys through, we lose more through training, I think, than through operational. Gosh, because you have to train for real, of course. So, and how were your operations? Because your operations, I'm guessing, in the Middle East, they they weren't very wet. No, no, they weren't very wet. No, but um, but yeah, no, they were they, they were great. And you know, I was very fortunate to have joined at the height of the war on terror. So you know, I was literally when I got there, it was probably the busiest time for UK special forces as a whole. We were literally back to back. Um, but living and dreaming what these kids nowadays play on Call of Duty, that was our day in, day out. Um, so for me, I'd reached the pinnacle in my career. You know, I was, I was doing what I'd signed up to do, you know, operational jumps, dives, the lot, you know, it was, it was really good. I was really, um, really fortunate. Because, you know, you hear guys, of, you know, especially some of the older guys, there probably wasn't anything since the Falcons for a long period of time. Um, I think mean, the Kosovo was the next one. 
because um, I went to Cosmo with Five Nine Record Troop, and that was the first tour for Record Troop Five Nine since the Falkland Wars. Um, you know, what I mean, that's, that was almost 17 years later. So this period, you know, very, very busy. Um, I'd say very fortunate <laughs> as, a, as an SF operator. Yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're going to join up, you want to see some action. <laughs> it's, you, yeah. don't wanna, you don't want to, you don't want to feel you've missed the boat, do you? No, no. On the other hand, seeing that action as we're finding in this wave of uh, veteran suicides at the moment is seeing that action opens up a whole nother can of worms. Did you experience any, I mean, no, I was I was very fortunate myself. I, I'd witnessed it firsthand with, with a few friends, um, so I know guys that had it. So for me, actually, I was very fortunate when I was in the military. There was nothing that really um, stood out for me. Was actually, in hindsight, looking back, was when I left. You know, I didn't plan on leaving. All I'd ever known up until this to this point was was the military, sixteen years, and then told that you'll now need to leave. So. All you did, all you've, you know, you've just gone from a tight knit unit, um, having a role, having a purpose, knowing what you're doing for the next two years, no way you fit in, uh, to all of a sudden being a civilian. How do I now fit into society? What is my role or purpose? And it's what's known as a, an identity crisis. And that, on top of the fact that I also had an injury and I couldn't even run across the road, that sort of, you know, just added to the issue. So I did have a bit of depression, I think, at that point. And at that time, I didn't know. It's only later in reflection, looking back. So, um, yeah, that, that was how I sort of suffered, really, that identity crisis. How do I now fit in society? What am I going to do? Mm. Did you go down the drinking route at all? Or was... No, I was very... For me, when I left the camp gates, this is May 2011, my wife was eight months pregnant. So, you know, my main concern was... I need to provide for my family, you know, I, I, you know, so that, that was my main focus. But also for me, so the natural progression without sounding like Liam Neeson for people with our skill sets is the security industry. So within 48 hours, I was out in Libya um, and this was the height of the Arab Spring, helping setting up uh, the DFID projects with the British Embassy. So Gaddafi was now in Tripoli and had been surrounded. So in Benghazi, the oil and gas, the security companies, the media, the NGOs were all, you know, forming up, ready for Gaddafi to fall. But I soon identified that the Libyans didn't want Af uh, Libya being another Afghanistan and Iraq. You know, once Gaddafi had fallen, they wanted to take control of the country. But also that these large security companies were charging six-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans. But when I scraped the surface, there was nothing in place. So at this point, I was also trying to find a niche within the industry. So I flew home and my wife gave birth to our daughter. And I said, look, can we take the life savings out of the bank? And she said, what are you doing? I said, I've got a plan. So I went back into Libya. And because of the huge proliferation of weapons, I bought 30 weapons on the black market. And I buried them between Tunis and Egypt. And just spent a month on my own in the desert designing and, and executing my own evacuation plans. And I then sold that to the oil and gas sector. So I now found my niche within the industry. So that sort of kept me busy and occupied um, during that period. Where do you get the, the, the insight, the drive, the, the wherewithal to, to take on something like, I mean, yeah, I think when, I, when I left the military, I mean, I, it's a bit of a complicated story. I won't, I won't even go there, but cut long so short, when I, when I finally came back to the UK, because I lived in Hong Kong after leaving the Marines, like, I couldn't picture myself getting a job 
stuck in shelves in Tesco's. I felt so useless. I thought all the stuff I learned in the military was just not applicable. All these people going, yeah, Royal Marine, anyone will give you a job. Uh -uh. Most didn't yeah. even know what the Royal Marines were, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. Um, so I'm really, I'm quite impressed and intrigued that you, mm. you buried weapons in the desert. Yeah, so I, I got the penny cases in, bought comms kit and had um, uh, handfuls of cash. But like I said, there's a huge proliferation at, at the time of, of weapons. It was very easy to get my hands on. Um, what I did have a shortage of, however, was ammunition. You know, I was, I was really struggling to get ammunition. And I went back in six months later and dug them all up again, you know, and replenned them, you know, oiled the weapons down and made sure they were there. And, you know, hopefully I, I didn't need to need them. I just knew it was more uh, peace of mind that they were there should we need, uh, need them in a situation. And in 2012, I just returned from the London Olympics and I was in Benghazi, uh, September 11, 2012, when the American ambassador got killed. I think there was a movie called 13 Hours. Horrible. Yeah, so I was there that evening and um, I don't know if it was right place, right time or wrong place, wrong time, but um, one of the German oil companies were, uh, needed assistance. So I took eight of their German oil engineers and got them back safely over three days through a safe house corridor that I had in the desert back to Tripoli. And because of the success of that, then two years later was the Tripoli War, which is a civil war between the militia and the government, which is still ongoing at the moment. And I was in Brazil covering in the World Cup and I got a phone call from um, the Canadian Embassy saying look we need your assistance we've heard that you're you're the man to, to come to so I flew in um, from uh, Brazil via London back into Libya and I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian Embassy 18 military and four diplomats from Libya back to Tunis it sounds very you know sexy and very Hollywood but in fact what was the success of this challenge was understanding the tribal influences, the demographics and the politics within the region. It wasn't about being armed with weapons and bullying our way through. And that's what it was. It was just all about communication uh, with the tribal elders. So everyone had this perception of the special forces of being offensive action, you know, blowing in doors, kicking in doors and, and all this stuff, which is what we do 25% of. And we're very good at that. But 50% of what we do is support and influence. It's hearts and minds, being able to understand you know the, the demographics and the politics within the country and I sort of took that mindset into this and and that was it I didn't need to dig up any of my weapons they're still there it was just having the right people and, and uh, chatting to the right people wow so you were like the ultimate kind of fixer really is that what they call that no I had a good fixer so you, oh, you had a good fixer yeah, you, any country. So I work in Yemen on my own, Somalia on my own, Libya on my own. It's having the right fixer. Because I think a lot of countries and a lot of security companies are naive to think they can just come in and bully their way around. You can't do anything without that local influence. It's having the right fixer. Because Libya's got 164 tribes. So my fixer in Tripoli would be useless in Benghazi. So it's having the right fixers who've got the right connections. And that takes time. But once you've got a good fixer, uh, it's excellent. My fixer actually for this, so to execute this project, it was myself and my fixer, who was a 50-year-old uh, internet shop owner from Worcester, and, and two fish wagons, which do that route every day. I didn't need anyone else. I didn't need any experts. My God, it's real, um, it's like Jason Bourne stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, good yeah. credit to you, mate. Seriously, um, I, what, so... 
you talked a bit there about other places in the Middle East. What kind of what kind of jobs were you taking on there? Yeah, so you know the security industry is very diverse. You know, when I left, you know, I had the opportunity to go over to Dubai with a lot of the other guys and instruct over there. But for me, I wanted to learn more about the industry. I wanted to um, progress and you know build up my CV. So I took a risk and did ad hoc. So anytime a job came in, and I'd, I'd, I'd take it. But for me, what it was and what was great about that is every time we had a phone call, it was a different job so you know i trained the kurdish special forces design and execute their training program in, in herbal in iraq we trained the uh, presidential close protection team in in kurdistan i took the uae royal family supiot from barcelona to maldives you know we did london olympics we did brazil world cup i was out in yemen teaching uh, setting up a security company i went out to somalia on my own and helped set up a security company you know that every phone call was a, a different job but for me, I was gaining more experience as we, as we, as we went along. And what was key, actually, I think the success of, of me in the security industry is that I took the risk to go into these countries and stand there face to face with them, sit down at their table or on the floor and eat, uh, you know, share bread uh, and water. And they'd be getting emails from security companies in London or New York, you know, and they're, they're 10 a penny. The fact that you've gone in and understood the atmospherics and taken that risk spoke volumes to them. And I think that was what was the success of me in the industry. Dean, what was the, I mean, I, I was familiar with the Benghazi embassy situation as much as you can be, you know, when you sit in the yeah. southwest of England. I'm well aware that those guys were let down was it by Hillary Clinton who who just denied that there was a was it a military presence in the area and yeah I think, I think there was yeah I think there was there was there, there was an element of that I think what I'd heard and you know it's, it depends who, who you talk to you know I think they were looking at um, reducing the budget of overseas projects and embassies for security um, so that incident be it coincidental or whatever, you know, uh, stopped them actually reducing the budget. I think they even increased it in the end. Mm. But wasn't it that those guys' existence was denied by? Yeah, I, th I, I think, think so. so. Yeah, I th I, yeah, I think I think a lot of it is is, is denied. But I think that's unfortunately even even in, 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 that's one of the one of the roles of special forces you're there you know to sort out an issue and if it, it goes wrong and it doesn't look good for the country you know they may deny that you're you're anything part of that and i think that's you know that may even be the reason why we we carry different weapons and we wear different uh, uniforms because they can say well they're not ours because we we use the SEATA2 not the C8 the marker you, you don't know you don't know <laughs> yes my gosh so Let's go back to the parachuting because you you said hey ho, yeah, high altitude, high opening. I I never realised that was still that was static line. I thought that was still your skydiving gear, but you just when I did skydiving, we call that hop and hop and pop, hop, hop and pop, out, yeah. and you quickly yeah. pop pop your parachute and yeah. then you sail down to earth. Literally, it you're in the sky like. 30 minutes or something yeah. as opposed to one minute yeah and you float down one, one guy i was saying this on another podcast one of the guys we used to skydive with we would all do the skydive bit so free fall 
1500 meters above the, or 1500 feet above the ground, whatever it was, pop our shoots. And now this guy would hop, hop and pop. So he'd jump out, put his shoot straight away. And he had a pint of tequila and <laughs> lemonade, uh, 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 black mask, you know, masking tape to his webbing here he had, and a straw. Yeah. And then he would just float down to earth, basically getting pissed. <laughs> I don't know how they let him get away with it. No, even the skydiving director would jump out with this guy sometimes and they never said anything to him. It's just, it's America. That's yeah. all the other guys were stoned anyway. So it wasn't like, it wasn't like this guy was unusual. Um, yeah. But yeah, I didn't realize in the special forces, you're on a static line when you, only on only on hey ho halo is, is as you said the hop and pop, yeah. but the hey ho you know obviously you all want to be uh, opening at the same time so you're, you're you're together and you have to then travel for a distance so because it opens straight away you know you get that maximum distance and the, and the advantage as well of, of going hey ho not on halo you don't need oxygen because you are on the limits that's the thing you're on the limits and get the maximum time or, or distance and you can travel up to fifty kilometers. Uh, on 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 hey ho, so you know you're well off off target, um, so no one's going to hear or hear or see you. So um, yeah, it's it's, an, it's just a, a another insertion method. So that's what we were doing. We we're just practicing all the various insertion methods, and it just means that you know on a day of the race, if we if we need it, we we we're all signed off uh, and you know uh, operational. Is it is it the same shoot then that you use for a hey low? Or was it a different type of parachute altogether? A different type of parachute. It's, it's, I think it's, if I get it right, it's, B, it's almost like a BT-80. So it's, it's a bit larger um, than your um, your freefall ones because they're obviously you know, for, for turning. Because it's larger, it's, it gives you more more flow and, and you know more forward propulsion. Um, but if you have a malfunction, I had two, I've had two malfunctions. Um, you know, the the uh, the second parachute, the reserve, is smaller than the, the main canopy, but it's again, it's a fast one. So although you've lost that that height from the rest of the team, you will still get to the uh, the same same DZ. Wow, fast! That's fascinating. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So yeah, I thought I had my malfunction by my pool cord here somewhere. <laughs> I've never had to do that, fortunately. I think every skydiver, you pull it and you just. You can't. You do your three count in your head, and you look up. And you're like, "Oh, thank God for that! <laughs> it's there." But you don't even. You don't even do the count when you get used to it, do yeah. you? You just you feel it coming out off cool. your back, and you feel you slowing down, and it just becomes so. I mean, I've not done. I've not done any nowhere near the jumps you've probably done, but um, yeah. But it's still that. When it opens, you're like, yes, <laughs> great. Yeah, well, because it was so, because it was smaller than the main canopy, it, it rattled a lot. So you're nervous anyway because you've just had a malfunction. I mean, you're looking up and this thing's this thing's shaking, and, you, and you're having to hold on. You're, you're going for about another another thirty, you know, another thirty minutes in the air, just holding on to dear life. <laughs> so, but just thankfully, you are alive. That's unusual though to have a malfunction. I mean. Some guys do like 40,000 jumps and they have maybe two malfunctions in, in that 10 year period. Uh, no, we, we, when we started introducing them, we, there, I think there was like 20% of malfunctions, quite a lot. Um, I remember that day we were like the third or fourth stick and 
each stick had one or two. Um, so yeah, but I, you just don't know. You just don't know it was a bad bad bunch or, or whatever. Who you know, it, you know, you don't pack them. You know, it could, it could be anything. So, but that's obviously why they have that system. You know, they'll they'll trace what the issue is and. But like I say, you know what to do. And for me, you know, it's almost, a, you know, you've done it. So, you know, you survived it. If you have another one, you know, you, you can still, for me, it was that you can still get to the target area. You've not dropped off like, you know, six, seven K off. Yeah, you know, if you separate from your mates, that would just be, <laughs> oh dear, I'm in enemy, enemy territory and I'm on my own. God, that, yes, no, awful. No. How long did it take you then to recover from your, your injury when you had this accident? So I didn't really get a uh, chance to properly recover. Even when I left, I wasn't fully, fully recovered. Um, I mean, I talked about evacuating the Canadian embassy. That was about five years from when I left the Camp Gates. And during that period, I sort of neglected my own physical and mental well-being because I was just focused on the private security industry. So... But this, my injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg because of the muscle wastage. And um, my wife said to me, I came home from that trip and I, I normally just, you know, re-cock. I just de-service and re-service my kit uh, ready for the next phone call. But one of my shirts was covered in blood um, because I'd administer first aid at an RTA on the border. And I said to my wife, can we get the blood out of my shirt? She said, yeah, we can. I'm more concerned than why there's blood in there. So I told her what I just just done and she's like ah, have you heard yourself it was almost like a throwaway comment that I just evacuated an embassy for me I, it was an eye-opener I disconnected from society um, and what it was is the pin had then dropped I was trying to match that adrenaline rush I had while still in the special forces without coming to terms with the fact that you you've left you know what I mean and, and that was a, a big eye-opener for me so chapter 16 in the book is called dead or divorced and that's the stage we're at in the in this story so my wife said look come work with me, I'm a property developer. And I thought, okay, so I, I did that. And I, I just, I bought a push bike off Amazon. I never cycled, um, you know, since I was a young boy. But straight away, although it's eight miles there to the office and back, straight away, being physically active, I felt a lot better. You know, I just felt this huge release, um, you know, just being, just doing something again. And like I said, this leg was two kilos lighter. So I never really recovered from it, from leaving the military. I sort of neglected it. And how did your big cycle come around then? So, yeah, so I was doing property developing with my wife. And you can imagine with my backstory so far, you can imagine me sat in these architects and planners meetings looking at the heating system and plumbing drawings. I wasn't really interested at all. You know, more interested in the coffee and the biscuits. And um, my wife could see that glaze over my eyes and said, you need to do something. And I'm not saying go bury weapons or evacuate people from across countries. So... It was about a month before my 40th birthday, so I was getting massive ground rush. I'm going to be an old man in a month's time. And I'd always fancied doing a world record. So my wife said, well, why don't you do it? You know, what are you going to do it in? And I said, well, look, cycling seems to be good, and it's not hampering my knee. My knee was, wasn't being bothered whilst being on a bike. So as I mentioned, I live in Aberdeen. I was thinking of cycling from Aberdeen to Dundee, maybe. And my wife then found the world's longest road, the world's longest motorable road, which is from the southern point of Argentina to northern Alaska, which is 14,000 miles. And um, so for me, having only, only cycled 20 miles, I applied for the world record. And um, six weeks later, Guinness came back and said, yes, you've been successful on your, uh, on your application. So that was the start of the, the, the cycle challenge for me. But then I needed to, you know, for me, 
willing to do it. So for me, I do a lot of stuff with charity. I used to be the SBS ambassador for Scotland. I'm the Royal British Legion ambassador. And a good friend of mine, I'm going to massively name drop now, is uh, Prince Harry. So him and I were on an FAC course back in 2007. And we got partnered off for the six weeks and remained good friends ever since. So I phoned him up and I told him my intentions of this bike ride. And I uh, met him in Kensington Palace and he told me about a mental health campaign called Heads Together, which is very much um, quite popular now. Everyone's aware of it. But in 2016, it was in its infancy stages. So I was aware of mental health in the military, but I was aware of mental health throughout the whole of society, be it postnatal depression, young children, teenagers, all the way through to, to adults. So that's what I did. I decided to, right, I'll do the, uh, the bike ride for the Heads Together campaign. And my aim was to raise £1 million. And I gather you did that. Yeah, so I, we raised just over £900,000. Um, the world record when I applied, when I uh, set off was 117 days, and I was fortunate, I, I smashed it by uh, 17 days, became the first man in history to do it under 100 days. So I did it in 99 days and 12 hours and 56 minutes. But that wasn't, that wasn't my original plan, and I took 10 days off the South America world record. My plan was to you know, try and do it in 110 days. Um, I, I went the opposite of everyone else. I spoke to the previous record holders and they all went from north to south. And all their issues were in South and Central America. So I thought, well, why take a gamble with the second half? You know, things like bureaucracy, languages, spares for the bikes, the hottest deserts um, and, and the highest mountains. So I thought, well, why take a gamble? Get those issues out of the way early. And then when you get into North America, you know, you can reassess the situation. So I wasn't looking at it from a cyclist perspective. I was looking at it from a military perspective. So I just took a military set of orders, put it on the challenge and just crossed out ammunition. So that, so I was quite proud in the fact that I did that. I did the opposite of everyone else. But I made great time in South America. It took 10 days off that world record. And I got to North America on day 70. And I was 14 days ahead. And I thought, perfect. You know, I can have a day's rest here or there. My wife then rang me and told me we'd been invited to Harry and Meghan's wedding, which just changed the dynamics completely of his challenge. So going into the phone call, I was 14 days ahead of the world record. Going out 10 minutes later, I'm one day behind. So I then had to catch up even more through North America uh, and, and Canada. And then when I got a week outside from the end, um, I cycled North America in 11 and a half days. I had 17 days originally planned for it, but I was cycling a lot of the time in the evening get extra extra time in the saddle and this professional cyclist had announced on social media that day and he was sponsored by red bull austrian team that he was gonna i think he had three other world records that he was going to be the first man to cycle this route in under 100 days in august so for me i just wasn't comfortable with that and i had to cycle for 22 hours in the last 30 hours in minus 18 to make sure that i came in under that 100 days so it wasn't the original plan it's just how it evolved and how the, um, you know, thankfully for me, when the information came to me, I, I could act on it. But I think my our military mindset really helps a lot with that. You can have the best plan in the world, but it doesn't survive first contact. You need to react to what's happening on the ground. And what was happening on the ground kept changing. And I just had to react to that. Um, so I think that that helped a lot with this challenge. Yeah, I think we're good like that. Um, that was one of the biggest issue not biggest it i didn't really have any major issues but when i ran the length of great britain mm. 
And my only goal was I wanted to run an ultra marathon a day and I carry all my equipment. So I'm camping like yourself, probably, you know, I'm yeah. camping as I'm going along. Mm. And everyone just kept saying, where are you going to be on this day? And, and I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm heading south, doing my ultra marathon a day, or at least that's the average that I want. I, I don't know. And I got a real sense there of how many people must like not live their dreams because they freaking want to plan everything to the last, you, you know, I did yeah, no planning. My only plan was I bought a ticket to John O'Groats and I had a compass. And as long as it said South and I was running that way, that, that was my plan. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I figured I'm not going to die because I'm essentially running along the road. So the, at the worst case scenario, I flagged down a truck and, and, they get me out of there right so it wasn't it, i wasn't being reckless or anything there was a couple of reckless bits in the scottish mountains but but um yeah no i yeah. completely i i completely get you that right today's going to be different yeah. we're going to do a 36 hour push or or it, it's it's i've got to, i've got to do this thing it's it's the same with um so i spoke to lou rudd sas yeah yeah who's a second man to ski across Antarctica. And he talked about um, Colin, who was the first guy to, to do it. They ba basically did it together. It's all a bit boys own silly, really. Yeah, yeah. But they did it exactly the same time within a few hours of each other. But Colin O'Brady um, says in, in his story, at the end, he was so like he didn't want to lose this record he went for like 36 hours skiing or something not not non-stop but that's just what adventurers do isn't it you know you yeah, can't it is. i think i think for me what was unique about this is i wasn't a cyclist and and that's what's what what where i stand out from other adventure explorers i take a sport or discipline and I find the biggest challenge. So I've cycled the world's longest road. So, so actually my sponsorship marketing team did a SWOT analysis at the beginning of the whole campaign when we put pen to paper and like the strength, the weaknesses, the opportunities and threats. And the only weakness that came back was my arrogance towards the cycling community, which I just took as a strength. Um, you know, I used that too as, as a bit of fire in my belly. But thankfully, no one said that in the cycling community. But for me, I've enjoyed cycling and I'm now like, right, what's the next challenge? So just take that same mindset, that same all, all that military style planning, and, and just put it into something else. So I don't take it too serious, really. But I, I think there's all this. There's also an advantage in that, in the fact that not naively you you're sort of um, you don't know much about the sport. I know enough about the sport, but not too much that it then starts playing with my oh. mind. You know, I've got nothing to compare it to. Um, so I had, you know, I, originally I had a sport team with me and you know, we had the documentary team as well. So I had to think about them as well. And the sport team, um, you know, they were, they were from a biking background and they were like, you can't sustain this. And I'm like, well, why not? You know, they're comparing me to themselves or other people and things like that. So, so for me, I just went, you know, it's all about, especially cycling, it's very, um, um, they're, they're quite geeky and they'll admit it, they love data, you know, heart rate monitor, power and things like that. And, and for me, I had that on my computer, but I just looked at the speed and distance and I just went on how I felt each day. I didn't go on the numbers. I just went on how I felt. And I, I think that was, that's quite um, an advantage, I think, doing 
doing new sports because if you've been cycling all your life you'll be comparing yourselves and all these you know analyzing the data you forget about that you know what I mean? oh exactly yeah i'd um someone did some research for me when i as i was running the country mm. went, chris i've been i've been looking up how is it possible to run the length of the uk and here's the world's greatest ultra runner and he's saying no it's not you, yeah. you you'd have to train for about 10 years you'd have to be running up to this amount a day you you'd need a professional medical team physio team psychological yeah. team to get you through it you'd need and i'm like i didn't even do any training <laughs> I, 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 I literally i did no training i hadn't run i had been disabled with a bad back for two for two years and I just went, this is my dream. And if I don't make it come true, no one else is going to. I'll stop the no, back. Exactly. exactly. Someone, said, someone asked me yesterday, I was guest speaking yesterday, virtually, you know, would I do a challenge with someone else? And I sort of, I sort of said no, because, you know, I'm in control then. You know, if, if it doesn't succeed, it's, it's on my back. I'm not relying on, on other people. So, you know, if you have the right mindset, you, you, you can do it. But I was the same. I, I'd only been cycling in three weeks. I thought, well, I'll go do Land's End John O'Groats because... My challenge was 15 lands in John O'Groats back to back. So for me, if I couldn't do one, how was I going to do 15? And everyone said to me, oh, you're not ready yet. You need to be bike fit. You need to know about cadence. I thought bike fit was fitness. I said, well, that would come with time. And actually, it's the measurements to the bike. I did it all completely wrong. But for me, just a mental boost that, you know, it was difficult. Don't get me wrong, that lands in John O'Groats. And I did the reverse end six months later, um, but found it a lot easier because I was now fit i knew about cadence and i had the right size bike and, and things like that but you sort of have to go through those hardships to, you know to, to to learn from them so let's talk some practical things dean because i, I as an adventurer or you know that's mm. that's that's what i'd like to be doing when i'm not sat on zo doing zoom meetings <laughs> um yeah. what 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 kind of bike did you have so um I had an Orbea, Orbea Terra, so Orbea is a Spanish company. So originally we had uh, Cannondale came to the table, uh, but Cannondale were asking loads of things which involved Prince Harry, and I said, no, I'm not interested. But Orbea, a Spanish brand, they, they launched the Orbea Terra about six months before I went off. So the Orbea Terra is an all-road bike. So the, 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 um, it has clearance to have thick road tires, uh, thick gravel tires or, or thin road tires. So it was the perfect uh, bike for me. But Orbea... Also, their sister company is Orca, which do all the Lycras uh, and all the triathlon kits. So, so I got a two for one really with Orbea, but they were, they were a great sponsor actually. And you know, they gave me all the bikes for the training and, and, and still now, although I said, look, I don't, I'm not doing any more cycling challenges. They said, no, just keep riding Orbea for us. Um, so, but yeah, no, that, that was the bike I had. Did you change the tires as you went along? Uh, we, yeah, we did. You know, there was no distinction between supported and unsupported for the world record. And obviously, chatting to the previous record holders, a lot of their issues going on their own solo was trying to have spares for the bikes. So having a support team and having the wagons meant we had the spares with us. Um, but, for, you know, you, you think of the Pan American Highway and you think it's going to be quite gravel roads. In South America, there was only a 10 kilometer stage between the Argentina and Chile border that needed uh, gravel tires. Um, other than that, it was nice, smooth road ties all the way to Cartagena. I mean, I just stayed on nice slicks until I got to 
Dalton's Highway, which is the last 400 miles in Alaska. It's where they film ice truckers. Um, so that, that road there is very gravelly. So actually, from a 22,000 kilometer route, only 410 kilometers, I needed gravel tires. The rest were smooth slicks, which really, really surprised me as well. Mm. What about the, the Darien Gap? How did you negotiate that? Yeah, so the, the only, the only uh, Guinness sent all the guidelines uh, that you need to do, but Darien Gap, you just cannot cross. So you, if you, if you uh, for the South America record, will record, I had to finish um, in Cartagena. So I thought, well, what, well, you can either fly from Cartagena or there's somewhere else further south. But because I wanted the South America record, I, I made sure I finished there. So I then, we left the vehicles. So logistically wise, we had to change vehicles in every country in South America. But my wife and um, my PA and two of my mates drove the vehicles. We had vehicles that were going to get shipped from Fort Lauderdale to Panama because we could then take them all the way to Alaska. Uh, but my wife got a phone call two weeks before when I was in Ecuador saying they hadn't been loaded on the container. So thankfully, my wife had foresight. They flew out and drove the vehicles 4,000 miles in eight days from Fort Lauderdale through Mexico all the way down to Panama. Wow. So when, yeah, so when I broke the world record in the morning, I then flew to from Cartagena to Panama City across the Darien Gap. And an hour later, they came in and handed over the keys. So very much a, a, a big influence in the success of this as well. So everyone sees you on the challenge, but it's that sort of, you know, my wife was a campaign director. She was running everything uh, around me. So, yeah, so that helped massively. Ah, oh, great stuff. And what were your, I mean, I'm... Um... One, one of the things I'm quite pleased about in my life is I've visited or I've backpacked through every single country in the Americas. Wow. Not, not every island, but, but most yeah. of them as well. Um, and I've had some great, I mean, just to live in the Amazon jungle and hunt fish for piranhas, is, that, that's why my yeah. life has been, it's why as an old man now, I'm just so happy that I've lived my life, you know? Yeah, yeah, true. But that's not to say it doesn't get hairy down there. No. There was, there was one point where every single other traveller I met had been robbed at gunpoint. All, all of them, they'd all lost all their luggage. I think I was one of the few people that was fortunate enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, I always carry a machete, obviously, because I'm going in the jungle. I don't know. If, I don't think that really had much to do with it. But mm -hmm. did, did you have any challenges like um, that? Well, obviously, I had a support team and documentary team. So they're a lot more risk averse than myself. Um, you know, so I had to obviously consider their welfare. So in South America and Central America, we would, I would only cycle from first light to last light. So we weren't on the roads in the evening. Uh, and exposed ourselves for that. But actually, I remember going through um, Colombia and, and uh, Mexico, and the sport team and them like, were, were all panicking, and they're all like in the vehicles. And I'm like, well, you're the one, you're in the vehicle, just just lock the door. I'm the one who's on the bike, exposed out here. But I never felt any threat at all. People were so hospitable in in South America. I really, it really surprised me, and I, I did enjoy it. Yes, we got to Central America, and there's a bit of bureaucracy at borders where. You know, they want an extra $20 to get you across. But, you know, that's, that's just the way you're living over there. You expect that. In fact, we got our vehicle broken into. One of the vehicles got broken into in Colorado outside the hotel. 
So we thought we left all the issues, or there's all the potential issues are in South and Central America, when in fact it was North America. We got uh, we got one of the vehicles broken into. No, but very fortunate we didn't. Um, and I think obviously myself being uh, in the security industry, you know, you go from in the special forces, I say, from being, you know, some of the bravest people in the world to the biggest cowards. You know, a great security operator can see a potential threat and just go around it. Yeah, good stuff. What um, what diet did you have? Were, were your support crew taking care of all that, or did you stop at cantinas and stuff? Yeah, so it's very easy back here to say, right, your nutrition, you're going to have this, this, and this. But when you got out there, it's whatever's available. So when we got into Argentina, it was so far down south at the bottom of the earth, it was ham and cheese or cheese and ham, whichever way you looked at it. And then, you know, we got to Chile, it was chicken and rice, but we could stock up in service stations and in shops. When I got to Peru, um, and every every border crossing as well in South America, that they would take the food off us. Every time we crossed into a new country, we had to buy uh, a load more food. But um, the um, we got to Peru, and uh, there was no uh, all the service stations didn't have decent food. The shops were shut, so I had to dine out in the evening. So I got food poisoning twice when I was in Peru as well, which wasn't wasn't nice. But you could still cycle uh, with food poisoning. It was only really when we got to America, the culinary options were a lot, you know, a lot bigger, but I just couldn't take on enough calories. So I had to approach it as a, as a polar expedition. So I started the challenge at 90 kilos. I was heavy. I didn't look like a cyclist, but I finished at 78 kilos. I lost 12 kilos. So you were losing weight from start to finish. But as you know, your, your body can only consume 7,000 calories a day through food. The rest has to come through you know, fluids and, and, and everything else. So I was burning about nine to 12,000 calories a day. So I was losing weight day by day. And yes, I'm just uh, just conscious of what, <laughs> what I think our friends at home will want us to talk about. Yeah. So I just wanted to say, how did you meet Harry then? Is that through the charity work? No, no, no. So um, I was in a Ford Air Controller course back in 2007 and Harry was a young second lieutenant with the Blues and Royals so he wanted he obviously wanted to go to Afghanistan uh, on tour but he couldn't just go to Afghanistan he needed a role or a, a role within his regiment so his CO is uh, terrified guy he said well go away on your FAC course so that was it I and mean, then him and I got partnered off for the six weeks um, became very close friends and just maintained that relationship going forward you know and I said he used to be a guest at my table for the SBS boxing and we just kept regular regular communications and um, I think you know because of who he is and 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 what he does and everything else it's not many people in the world he can trust and with myself coming from my background he knew he could be open and you know it just stays it stays with me and I think that's one one of the main reasons him and I you know 13 years on uh, still close friends and very fortunate to get invited to the wedding brilliant i like harry but <clears throat> i have to say it, it it annoys me the way he keeps borrowing a tenner because <laughs> i know i'm never i'm never going to get it back <laughs> yeah I know. yeah just speak to the security ask them <laughs> i'll get i'll get it off you dean um so just sticking on the cycling, um, next year, mm. uh, a former police detective that I know, Brad, hello, Brad, if you're watching, um, and I, we're going to cycle north to south across America nice, yeah. on the 
I know they come out of these cliches and I know they're cliches, but it is the hardest mountain bike route in the world. So it's basically down the Grand Divide. So the mountain range from Canada down to Mexico. Um, yeah, on the west coast, is it? Along the west, across the Rockies? Yeah, down there, across the Rockies, yeah. 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 So maybe we could touch base about that, mate, and I can get a few tips off you about things that you found um, helpful. Um, maybe talk about yeah, sp yeah, so sponsorship and charity and all that sort of stuff. We're going to do it for Rock to Recovery, which I'm sure you yeah. you know about. Yeah, no, any, any any sort of tips or introductions, you know, or Bay have got great mountain bikes. But if you look at Mark Beaumont, uh, Mark Beaumont did the Pan American Highway, but he started in Alaska. He then climbed the highest peak in North America and then did the same route as you, sort of handrailed the Rockies down, uh, down to Argentina and then did the um, uh, Aconcagua, I think, down there. But for me, when I chose my route, I actually, when I came in through... Um, because there was three options. There was the West Coast, which you're doing, which is the lumpy one. Um, there was another one, which was just um, uh, more central. And I came in actually through San Antonio, Texas, and then went through, sort of went upwards uh, towards New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, up to Calgary. And, um, ah, okay. So that's the route I came. So, what, so I still had to cross the Rockies, but... It, it, um, actually, when he looked at the ascents, the ascent um, and descent, it, it was a lot smaller. So, um, so that's that's how I why I chose that route. So I wasn't doing the hardest, <laughs> the hardest uh, hill climb in the world. Well, yeah, because your your yours was all about time, the shortest time, wasn't it? And yeah, very objective driven. Like you said, you you mentioned when you backpack around America, you must have seen some amazing sights. I can only really remember ten days that stand out out of ninety nine days because I was so fixated on on time. You know, I, I was very disciplined in my timings. I broke the days into four stages. You know, because nutrition and hydration were key. That I just cycle as fast as I could for two hours, get off the bike, have food and water. But I was thirty minutes and I was back on the bike. I wasn't having a selfie with a llama. I wasn't chatting to. The the documentary team and then I'll just go for it so I was very much like this whereas my next challenge so probably tell you now my next challenge like I said I've enjoyed cycling um is to kayak the river Nile from source to sea which has never been done before um but because it's there's no record to beat I can you know I'm not going to be tapping my watch I'm going to enjoy the experience more and it's going to be more about the adventure rather than trying to smash records well, you should speak to my mate Chaz Powell then, because he's walked some of the biggest river, three of the big, biggest rivers in Africa, and really? yeah, I'll put you guys in touch because uh, um, yeah, he's a he's a he's a fascinating man. Yeah, you know, it's just again another person that's living the life that that I'd love to live, and um. We, we, we need to have nine lives like the cats, don't we? And we can do <laughs> do all these things. Yeah, but I'm, I'm excited about the Nile one. You know, I, I talk, talked about evacuating embassies, working in Yemen and Somalia. Everyone's very quick to, you know, tarnish like the Muslim communities and things with one brush. When in fact, they're so hospitable and, and really kind people that if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be able to do it. And that's what I'm looking forward to about the Nile is the fact that actually... The challenge is in the hands of the locals. I'm relying on the locals to help me, you know, get me through this. And, and that's, that's one thing I, I enjoy about these challenges is, is meeting the locals and, you know, understanding their cultures and, and everything else. So that's why one exciting thing I'm looking forward to about the Nile. 
Well, you're never going to find better hospitality than the Muslim world because that's that, that's what they do best, you know. Yeah. Well, Levison Woods walked in now, so he's a good friend as well, and uh, he told me in Sudan that they won't have you sleeping by the river. You you have to go into their house, and he said they just keep feeding you and feed you. He said you'll put on weight in Sudan, so I'm looking forward to Sudan. Dean, tell us about your book, mate. That's because that's uh, another adventure again, isn't it? Yeah, so, um, yeah, the book Relentless, I'd never, you know, the reason, as we touched on there, I did the bike ride, so I wasn't, you know, evacuating embassies and burying weapons. I didn't see it as a career in guest speaking or doing other challenges or, or writing books. So so Relentless um, is my story. What's, what's great about this book, and, you know, there's, I call them biceps and bullets. There's plenty of biceps and bullets books out there which go from, sort of military to, to media. Whereas this is in three stages. It's the military, my, my childhood and my, um, the military, um, the private security. And we've just touched a couple of the stories within the private security sector there. And then the, the bike ride at the end. But it starts at the beginning with my, my father telling me that I would last two minutes in the military. And that's been very much one of my drivers in life or one of my motivators to prove people wrong. You know, someone to you blue in the face or you can just go away and and do it and and your actions speak um a lot more louder than, than, the, than words yeah we can achieve anything we want can't we if we if that's what we want to do and i think sometimes if you've got a parent that's not supportive yeah I don't know if he wasn't supportive because my father was in the military as well and, and my grandparents i reckon it was actually reverse psychology I'm not too sure. I wonder whether it was a, yeah. I only, unfortunately, he passed away four years ago. He never got to see the bike ride, but he, he did get to see me to go special forces. And so I, I just sometimes wonder whether it was reverse psychology. But the fact that I still talk about it now, if, you know, if my son asked me he was going to join the military, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't tell him those words. I'd probably give him some, uh, some comforting words and <laughs> of advice. <laughs> a different era completely. All my son's ever heard from me, and he's sunny a little lad, is you can do anything you want, son, and, and you will do it, and you're brilliant, and I love you loads and loads and loads. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Just stuff that a lot of us as kids, we never heard any of that stuff, you know? No, it's a, it's a different wheel completely, and like you said, yeah, anything, I generally believe, I don't believe, I don't believe the word impossible, I just, I just feel it's not been done yet. Was it, um, was it difficult writing your book? Did, did it? Did it no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I had a um, um, so I, I got introduced. My literary media agent introduced me to a ghostwriter. So trying to find a ghostwriter, um, you know, once you've got the rise, go right. Because for me, I'm from a military background, and I didn't want to, as we were talking earlier, you know, start translating acronyms and um, you know all, all this lot and, and and the language. So um, there's a guy called Geraint Jones, who's a he's a best-selling writer. He does a lot does a lot of um uh, fiction from the, the romans and the legion area as well but he's ex-military so he understood when i was talking to him he knew what I, I, I was talking about and so we would just call we would just chat on the phone to each other each day we start at the beginning uh, for an hour and he would you know i would talk and talk and then he would ask certain questions so 
I think it was great working with him because if I was to write the book myself, it may have been slightly different. You know, the reviews from the book are, are, are excellent, you know, um, and I'm very fortunate. I've got it, uh, you know, endorsed by Ranulph Fiennes, Bear Grylls, Leveson Wood, there's some big names uh, on there. But, you know, people have read the book in 24 hours, 72 hours. But if I was writing it, I'd probably go into a bit more detail because I was always conscious of the SF community. I've always been... Uh, conscious about you know keep maintaining my integrity and, and my relationship with the group so I was always writing it on them reading it and and Jez said look you know the majority of readers don't know I'm from the military and it needs to flow don't worry about these bits so it was good actually having that and and then you know when I got it and read it you know we, we could change things around so I uh, know for me it was really good having, having that we, we, we finished the book in in two and a half months from start to finish. Wow, that takes me a year. Well, as we said before we started speaking, it's taken me two years to write my uh, John O'Groats yeah. book because of my YouTube commitments. It's um, two and a half if months. Yourself, if you're writing yourself, it takes long. You know, Jez is a ghostwriter. He, he was getting paid <laughs> to write. It's his job. So I think he, he used to say we'd have that call for an hour. Then he would just go type two to three thousand words that uh, that afternoon and the next day we'd be on the call but then you know then it sort of takes time as well it also has to go through the disclosure cell so the MOD have to to sign off on it and I think that's what the MOD said the MOD loved the book because I didn't go into detail about the special forces I didn't have to and I didn't want to jeopardize you know, the guy's safety and everything else because there were so many other stories out of the military um which they, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't govern. They couldn't red pen it. They said, well, it's your story. You know what I mean? So that, that, was, that was the luxury of that as well. So it went, that went through that process quite quick. And they were very helpful as well, actually. They, they weren't putting red tape everywhere. They were, you know, giving us advice along the way. So it's good. Yeah, apparently that, that, the, the MOD are good if you work with them. Yeah. They wanted me to put all my podcasts through them. It just can't happen, you know. Um, it, I think I'm, I'm, I haven't been in the military for 25 years or whatever it is, and it's not like me and my guests are discussing state secrets. Or yeah. occasionally, I, I do get it. They pointed out where someone's disclosed something that it's very tenuous. It's really tenuous, but technically, yeah, I guess that's yeah. kind of you know secret information. But um, yeah. but no, I get. I, I guess your book is more. Uh, you know, you're not talking about your operational stuff as much. <laughs> but the thing is, as well, is that um, you know, I know I've signed the official secrets yet. I know what I can and can't talk about. You know, even when I go on like Sky News or LBC Radio or Hello Magazine and things like that, they'll always they're always fascinated with SF and they always ask the questions. And I always very I'm very easy to deflect it. And I know what I can and can't say but nowadays with the likes of google the information's out there anyway You're, you know what i mean if someone said to me oh where the sbs base i'll tell you pool because if you google it it's in pool but if you ask me a, another question then i might not be able to answer so you know you you have that flexibility um you, you just know where the line is and not to cross that line and again with the mod they like to be um and i've, I've maintained a good relationship because 
I haven't flanked them. I haven't caught them out by surprise. I've been very transparent from the start, you know, from the off. Me, you know, me and Prince Harry doing a promo video together. That was it. That was me then out as, a, as special forces. And it's like, okay, so that's that's out there now. Um, it's just, you know, just limit what what you say. But you can't take that back. You know, I, I, I still get them now and then saying, oh, you know, you're on Sky News. It mentions special forces. Whenever I go on Sky News to talk about apples, pears, and bananas, they don't care. They just see you as Prince Harry's special forces friend, and, and that's out there in the domain anyway. So I can't, you know, I can't get that back. Um, but I know, like I said, where where the line is and where not to cross it. As long as you stay on the right side, you, you should be fine. Dee, what we should talk about is, other than obviously um, promoting your book, what are, yes. what are you up to as we speak? So. Um, so the plan was obviously the Nile project. I'm, I'm supposed to be kayaking, uh, finishing my kayak training and, and heading off to, to Africa. So we have a documentary team, the same guys that filmed Leveson Woods walking the Nile. Uh, they're, they're assisting me with this. So we were chatting to broadcasters. Obviously, everything's been put on hold at the moment because of the, the situation. So we'll see where we, we'll look at the lay of the land um, uh, in, in a few weeks. But um, now my wife's property development, she's building a wine bar and a private members club across the road um one of the things that's come back from the book as well is me being a security guru so why not you know keep my hand in that so i'm setting up another security company to um to keep that going so we've got lots of things going on the british legion i'm an ambassador for the british legion next year is the centenary of the british legion so i'm doing a big challenge for the british legion next year as well so just, uh, I won't give away anything on here, but we know putting a lot of pen to paper and there's going to be some um, uh, some exciting projects there. So yeah, lot, lots going on. Juggling that with uh, homeschooling with the kids. <laughs> it's, uh, it's busy. It's busy. Good. It's good to hear, mate. It's good to hear. It's all uh, all exciting stuff. Any links? Um, we'll put links to your book and your social media and whatever below the, the, the video so people can um, can make contact with you. Yeah, no, no, please do. Yeah, yeah. Dean, stay on the line because there's a couple of things um, I'll, I'll speak to you about after. I want my tenor back from Harry, that's for sure. <laughs> With but, interest. Uh, mate, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your amazing story. No, thank you for having me. People are going to love to listen to this one. I, I urge everybody to buy dean's book um get a taste of real life instead of bloody soap operas and uh yeah mate let's pick this up again at some at some point um because as i always say with all my brothers from the military we we know we haven't even scratched the surface yeah no, I, I generally believe you know everyone thinks oh you've got a book you know about your life i said that's the first chat you know things you know, just the beginning there's a lot more still to come to everybody at home massive thank you for watching another episode of the bought the t-shirt podcast huge love to you and your families please look after yourselves please like and subscribe if you did like if you didn't like i don't know what you do to be honest you're doomed <laughs> and if you want to support us on patreon the link is below. Much love, friends. Friends, thank you for listening to the Bought the T-Shirt podcast. Please like, subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow me on social media. Username, 
Chris Thrall. Instagram, Chris.Thrall. Thank you.